Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I get through my days by singing a happy little working song, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm an awkward teenager fumbling his way through an epic road trip in search of musical genius, as we watch through 60 films and counting. In the driving seat, though, is the goofiest guy I know, and trust me, he takes that as an absolute compliment. He's the High Priest of Hux, the one and only Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, you must be pretty excited to be doing this bonus episode on a goofy movie which we are about to set up because you're a goofy guy right you love a bit of goofy i'm a goofy guy um oh i'm a goofy guy <laughs> benjamin no i like goofy as we talked about last time like my number one core disney character last time on our roger rabbit episode my number one core disney character is donald duck i think goofy close second much better companion in the video game kingdom hearts so in that sense, he kind of edges it. And as we'll find out in this movie, Goofy has that pathos that you never get from Donald, that you certainly never get from Mickey. Can you do a hyuk, Ben? You've, you've already brought in the concept Ooh. of hyucks. Uh, I, I can give it a go. What about it? Was that a relatively decent Goofy sound? <laughs> that was something. If only, Sam, we were about to introduce somebody who has an impressive ability to deliver incredible voices for animated and other characters. Yeah, as you'll be aware, this is going to be a slightly different episode of Disneyversity. This is not part of our regular schedule. This is not a Walt Disney Animation Studios movie. But we wanted to do a little extra something in honour of our very special guest who we're about to introduce. It's been a few weeks since we last recorded. I got married. Sam absolutely smashed it as our Master of Ceremonies on the day. Uh, and we've got our Aladdin episode in the bag already with a super exciting guest. But before we carry on with the Disney renaissance, we're taking inspiration from Max and Goofy to not rush to our next destination. Instead, let's meander, let's enjoy the views, share some quality time, and maybe see Bigfoot. The opportunity came up to do a bonus episode, and we thought we'd move forward just a couple of years in the timeline to talk a Goofy movie from 1995. I know this is a huge childhood favourite for some people. It has a real cult following. And the reason we wanted to do that is to make way for an excellent, distinguished, exciting guest. He is an esteemed podcaster, a comedian, a performer, and a hugely talented voice actor who's lent his vocal cords to the likes of Masters of the Universe Revelation, the Harley Quinn animated series, the George Lucas talk show, and and now his voice appears in what was one of my most anticipated films of the year, now one of my delights of the year, 
Disenchanted, the long-awaited sequel to Disney's live-action satirical fantasy adventure, voicing none other than Pip the Chipmunk. We are hugely delighted to welcome Griffin Newman. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. I, I said right before we started recording, but I, I tweeted out when I was getting ready to try to make the podcast rounds for Disenchanted, asking people for recommendations of Disney animation podcasts that I should uh, go on. And, and yours was overwhelmingly one that people were almost violently insistent <laughs> I do. Pleasantly but violently insistent is hopefully the fervor yeah. that we inspire in our listeners, you know. Politely violently insistent. <laughs> Just to up top connect the dots on this, I emailed you guys and we were talking back and forth about what we could possibly do that would work with the, the schedule with you guys. And you threw out a Goofy movie. And Goofy movie, of course, is directed by Kevin Lima, who also directed the first Enchanted and was one of two people who voiced Pip in the first Enchanted, the character that I play in the sequel. So it felt like a really, it felt like kismet, uh, a good thing to talk about and a way to connect everything together. Yeah, it all comes full circle. A, a goofy movie connects us all. It does. <laughs> and so, yeah, Disenchanted just came out this week. As we record this, it came out like two days ago on Disney+. Plus. Mm. I watched it this afternoon. It is an absolute delight. I had a blast with it. I love the Thank first you. film and it's such a joy seeing everybody come back. And for you stepping into this as Pip, How's this week been for you as the film's been coming out? Where did this all come together for you? It's been wild. You know, it, the one consistent for me is my experience throughout the last year and a half plus has been so compartmentalized from the movie at large. But basically, I the, the producer of both Enchanted films is a man named Barry Josephson, who produced both live-action versions of The Tick. Uh, the TV show. So he produced the more recent one for Amazon that I played Arthur on. And I knew he had been trying for years to get the Enchanted sequel made. It was always sort of a priority for everyone. And I think, as is the case when you're dealing with big stars and people who have only gotten more famous since the first movie, there's often that thing where Amy Adams will say, like, I have a window of availability 18 months from now. If there's a workable script in 18 months, I can film it. Otherwise, I might not be free for another two years after that. <laughs> and they kept on not getting a script that they felt happy about. And I think going through different directors and all sorts of things. I think it was a really tough nut to crack. But, but knowing Barry and, and being friends with him, he would tell me, like, we're really, I really want to get this made. It's not a thing I'm giving up on. We just need to figure out what it is. And then I, I had heard that it was finally happening. I got a call from him on a random Monday. I woke up to a bunch of missed calls and he said, I need you to do me a really big favor. There's no job in this for you, but, which is the thing you love to yeah, That's hear. what you want to hear, right? Straight away. Yeah, there's nothing yeah. in this for you, there's no, but. There's nothing in this for you, but we're getting ready to do the new Enchanted and there's a creature in it who has a lot of dialogue and we're about to do the table read on Zoom with the full cast for the Disney executives. Everyone's here in Dublin getting ready to film, and it's the final time to read the full thing, because uh, it was still early 2021. COVID was preventing anyone from being able to do an actual physical table read with everybody. And he said, can you just fill in at the table read? There's no job for you. They're going to hire someone else. But I know you like doing voiceover. It'll be good to be seen by all these Disney people. And you get to say you were on a Zoom with Amy Adams. Isn't that cool? And I said, sure, yeah, absolutely. And they sent me the script and I went like, oh, this is Pip. Mm -hmm. This is the character from the first movie. This isn't just some random, he's a big part of the first movie. And then I read through this and he's arguably even a bigger part of the second movie. This movie opens with Pip 
sort of providing the superstructure narration, telling the story to his children in a further off future. So I, I felt the pressure to do it right. My secret hope was if I kill this, if I really, really over deliver at the table read, maybe they hire me to be the guy on set in the green pajamas <laughs> doing the voice just for off camera yeah. performance. That was truly my goal. Is I, I, you know, I'd been in lockdown for like a year and I was like, I would happily be paid minimum wage to just go to Dublin and be on set with Amy Adams and Maya Rudolph and James Mars and everyone. And you erase me and you dub me over. I don't care. I'm happy to hold up the little puppet for Eyeline. Uh, and then they called me like a week later and said, we're just going to have you play the chipmunk, which was wild and yeah, bizarre. That's incredible. So do you think it was a test? Do you think they, hey, there's nothing in this for you, but maybe come to the table read. Do you think that was an audition in a way? Or do you think they really did plan to get somebody else? And then they were like, we've got him. We've got the guy. No, I, I, I look, what was later sort of revealed to me was that they were struggling to figure out how to cast the role. And part of it was that there are two different people who play him in the first movie. It had been an amount of time. There's basically the opening chunk of the first movie, the animated prologue was Jeff Bennett, who played Johnny Bravo, and uh, Kowalski from the Penguins of Madagascar, and uh, Dexter's dad, Dexter's Laboratory, one of the best voice actors alive. So he has like five lines in the opening of the film where he's doing this Pip voice. And then when Pip comes through the real world, he can't speak and he's stuck squeaking. And Kevin Lima did all the squeaking. And I think they weren't sure with this, how they want him to sound, what they want it to be like, as his Disney's want to do, I think there was the question of, is there an incredibly famous person we could get to do this? Is there someone who already fits into the pre-established voice, but whose name we could use to actually advertise this movie? Which I was not going to fall anywhere on that matrix. But I think they were really struggling with it. And as Barry sort of later told me, he thought I could do it. Mm. And he knew it was going to be hard to pitch to Disney. Like, Griffin, who? What are you talking about? Why would we hire this guy? So he, in his mind, was using it as a backdoor audition, which he did not say to me and he did not say to anyone else. And then, yeah, when I, when I did it, thankfully, enough people approved and, and decided, fair enough, why not? Let's make our lives easier. He costs nothing. Just let him do it. Your Andalasian dream came true. So did you get to go to the set in person? What was this job for you? Was it purely voice no. acting or was there an element yeah. of being in with the cast? No, it's a, a good question because it, it was an odd process and it was different than what I've done before because uh, I've done on camera stuff, which is, you know, obvious what we all think of as like regular production. And then most of the voiceover stuff I've done, I haven't gotten to do any voiceover where you actually work with anyone else in the cast. Those jobs are few and far between. So it's almost always this super compartmentalized, you're in a box reading with the director or someone, you never meet the other actors. And usually you're, you're doing it to nothing other than the script. And then if they bring you in later for ADR or last second rewrites, maybe then at that point you're dealing with storyboards, animatics, or even sort of rough animation. But usually it's a it's kind of a blank slate, and uh, I thought, well, great, now they'll I get to be on set. They're letting me do the real voice, but also hopefully they let me fly out to Ireland and wear the green pajamas and everything. And because of COVID, it was just impossible. They had at the moment they called me and told me I had the job. It was the day after they had started filming, because that table read was only a week before they were about to start, and with quarantine times. 
and work visas and everything. It was one of those things where I was very like, I would love to do, you don't even have to pay me to be out there. I will be out there on set every day doing it off camera. I'm so eager to leave my house. <laughs> uh, I pitched it really hard and it was just like, if we, if we put it in motion tomorrow, we wouldn't be able to actually have you on set for five weeks. It was one of those things. So basically I get told I have the job on a Tuesday. They had started filming the day before. That Saturday was the director Adam Shankman's one day off. And I went to a studio. He was in Ireland over Zoom with me and I had to record the entire movie. Wow. And the hope was over time we will replace most of this. Hopefully we don't need to use most of this. But I did the entire film as like a four or five hour marathon to get at least a semi-workable version of every line that they could use as a scratch track, basically to play on set for reference, to get the timing right and the pauses in between the live action actors' lines and give them a sense of what energy I was gonna do. And then also so the editing team could start editing around that and the animation team could start early sort of storyboarding around that. And then from that point, I do that session and then I get called in maybe three or four months later. And then it was every three or four months after that over the last 20 months. My last session was maybe three months ago. But as it went on, I would be recording to more and more finished stuff. So the first session is to nothing. The second session is to the live action footage, which has now been edited together, but there's just nothing even representing Pip there. And for the 2D beginning and end, there were maybe storyboards. And then it starts to become, oh, the beginning and end are animatics. And in the scenes, there's like a PlayStation 1 render of Pip. <laughs> Just uh, like a rectangle with rectangles coming out of it. And that's Pip. Yeah. And there's maybe not even movement. There's not like physical performance. But you see where he's going to be in the shot. And then it was like every time I went in, now it's PS2, now it's PS3, <laughs> now it's PS4. They finally added fur. And over time, the performance started to come in. But it was an interesting process because it was, there was a back and forth and there was so much to, I'm doing my part while watching things that are fixed and then understanding my one little piece of it's the one thing that can still be malleable. And I can sort of suggest things that might adjust the character performance or the energy of all of that. But also they're already married to what Amy and everyone else did on the other side of the take. So you're trying to fit into these narrow things. I mean, and you asking what the last week has been like for me, I excitingly booked uh, a live action movie uh, that I'm filming right now in upstate New York, but it means that I was not able to go to the premiere or the junket or any of those oh. things. So even my press tour basically has been this, where I'm once again just isolated over Zoom from everyone else. So it's this odd thing where I like, I feel like I'm part of the movie, but I've also been so compartmentalized from everyone else. I watched both Enchanted's back to back last night. I'd seen the first one before, but I was struck this time around by how much it places itself in the lineage of specifically like those older princess movies it's cinderella it's snow white it's sleep and beauty a lot more than it is like the renaissance yeah the little yeah. mermaids beauty and the beast and all of that and i was wondering because so you're now part of this and i know you're a guy who watches films analyzes films talks about films on a podcast like you are a film nerd guy were those the films that you went back to? Were you looking at like Jiminy Cricket? Were you looking at The Mice oh, yeah. from Cinderella? Like which sidekicks were you taken from? The three, I mean, uh, vague spoilers here, but they put it in the trailer. So it's already a little spoiled. But the three I feel like I looked at the most were Cinderella, Peter Pan, 
and uh, no, you know, it was Cinderella, but it was both sides of looking at Gus, Gus and Jack and looking at uh, Lucifer because there's sort of a twist with my character where he becomes sort of he tiptoes between the sort of uh, funny, wisecracking animated sidekick friend and the evil cohort sidekick animal. But those were the ones, yeah, that I felt like I, I had to steep myself in. I mean, there's a bit you can pluck from so many different characters, you know? I even think just maybe the comedy sensibility of Pip is a little more modern, even though his role in the film feels a little more classical. So it's, yeah. it's like you're not going full Mushu in Milan, but he's <laughs> a little more relentless and fast talking than a Gus Gus or a Jack, you know? Like a little Iago-esque, especially yeah. when he's evil, Pit. Yeah, but I those ones are more aggressive. It was sort of trying to find a, a middle space. Kevin Lima, who did the first one, Am Shankman, who did this one, both of them are, are Disney fanatics, and we're trying to pluck from as many different places as possible. But, but tonally, I do feel like Cinderella was the one I kept on going back to. I mean, in terms of some of the stuff that you get to do here, mm-hmm. if you had like a Disney bucket list of things to take off, I know. as you said, yeah. you set up the movie, something we have talked about because we're going through in chronological order. Yeah. And I would say, I don't know, maybe 50% of the episodes so far, we start our discussion of the film and we're like, here we go. We have a storybook. We have a storybook opening. We go into the book. You get to read the storybook opening to Disenchanted. That must be high up the Disney bucket list, right? It's wild. I, I don't know if there is a thing on the Disney bucket list left that I didn't get to do in this movie. It really was kind of embarrassment of riches. But I think a lot of my friends now have been watching the movie and going, like, they text me a minute in and they're like, wait, you opened the movie? (laughs) I'm realizing a lot of my friends thought like, oh, you're in this for a scene or something. And I was like, no, I was trying to tell you. I'm like, throughout the movie and it's the superstructure and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. You get the singing Alan Menken song. Yeah. You open the soundtrack. Alan Menken's, uh, I mean, Idols implies that uh, I in any way aspire to do what he does, which I, I have no musical ability whatsoever. But I was obsessed with Menken as a kid. At sort of the peak of my Disney obsession, I honed in on that name. He was like <laughs> the guy I knew by name and tracked the most. Little Shop of Horrors is my favorite musical of all time. It was bizarre. It is bizarre to see that credit at the end of the movie where it's like, Songs by Alan Menken, Stephen Schwartz, and a laser performed by Griffin Newman is uh, absurd. Did you get to encounter Alan Menken? Did you get to cross paths with him at all during this? No, no, I wish. This is the thing. I've like, I've basically gotten to meet uh, no one. <laughs> Barry Josephson's daughter got bought mitzvahed in LA three weeks ago, and Amy Adams was there. And I got to meet her and thank her because I, by all accounts, she was one of the people who said, I, I think we should hire him. And that was bizarre because it's like I've spent close to two years now having uh, imaginary conversations with her. They're not even imaginary. I'm just talking to a screen and having to convince myself that this is an organic, real thing that's happening. It's a very odd thing. No, but I'd love to meet Mencken. It's one of those things where I'm just like, now if I ever get to meet Mencken, I have a really good opening Mm. icebreaker, which is technically we've worked together already. Well, something that really delighted me, and I know will have delighted Sam, we we talk a lot on this podcast about great voices, great accents, and Mm. not only in voicing Pip do you get to open the movie, open the soundtrack, sing an Alan Menken song, but you get to give it some, shall we say what the, I'm walking here voice, you get to say, patoibia, dystoibia, and you rhyme it with, saboibia. 
That is exquisite. Yeah. It's genius. Yeah, you so often, I think I've heard other uh, voice actors talk about this, but you have like the sort of turnkey line that helps you get into the voice. I find often in the things I've worked on, it's saying the name of the other character, the main character you play off of. Princess Giselle, I work on, but then the line in doing the movie, I realized, oh, this is the better one to get into just in terms of it being the real flex of the muscles is uh, where he goes, with no mother or father to speak of. <laughs> you go the full camp Granada. Yeah, exactly. Mother or father <laughs> uh, really helps get in there. You know, it's one of those things where you go like, am I going too big with this? And it's like, no, you can't go big enough. Yeah. If they ever do a live action remake of Oliver and Company, I feel like you've positioned yourself as the guy to call. That would be my dream. Yeah, I love Oliver and Company. I'm I'm a I'm a born and raised New Yorker. So I Oliver Company actually I I feel like uh, I mean they're what a decade apart if not more, but it feels similar to me in Goofy movie where it's like this one aberration in the middle of a run of Disney movies where it's suddenly like very modern, very grounded. Live action Oliver and Company. How many years do we have before that happens? <laughs> it can't be long. Months? Days? Yeah, we'll be ready whenever that does happen. So, as Sam mentioned before, you are obviously also a podcaster, the Blank Check podcast, and you guys go through incredible runs from great filmmakers over the years. You actually did a Musker and Clements season, which obviously kind of crosses over yeah. with where we are in the in the Disney timeline now. How was that journey for you going through those uh, animated classics? I loved it. I mean, I, I love animation i'm a huge animation nerd there was a period of my life where i thought i wanted to be an animator and i didn't have the uh the stamina to do it i basically tried and i think it was okay basically capable at it but it was like i can't deal with hand cramps to this degree um (laughs) so when we started blank check i i very early on said i'd like to try to cover animation directors because i i feel like they're so rarely thought of in terms of careers i feel like animation directors really get lumped into the studio they're at rather being seen as individual careers a lot of that is too like in especially in the early run of disney films there isn't a clearly defined credited director it becomes the sort of like walt disney is the ultimate auteur of these movies and there are supervising directors or there are 10 directors credited or whatever it is and that's sort of like a tour theory in American studio mainstream animation, I feel like doesn't come later. So we did Brad Bird on the show. We did um, Miyazaki and we did, I guess we've done a couple filmmakers who have some animated films, uh, whether you count the Zemeckis or not, George Miller. David and I latched on at one point of, oh, you could do Musker and Clements and their arc works as a pretty good microcosm of like three generational swings of Disney animation, if not more. Great Mouse Detective, the one before they figure it out. You know, Little Mermaid, which is the start of the real swing. Aladdin, which is arguably, you know, one of the peaks of the Renaissance. Then Hercules, when it's sort of starting to crest, the blooms off the rose, a movie I love, and they're getting weirder and more experimental, but you're like, oh, the Lion King, we're on the downslope from here in terms of the cultural cachet these movies have. And then uh, Princess and the Frog as like the swing back and Moana as sort of their final grand triumph. It just felt like a really nice arc to do. What was interesting about it is 
so often when we do the show, it becomes so much about those filmmakers and trying to dig into them and what they were going through in their lives and their psychology and their background and everything. And those two guys feel a little unknowable. You know, it became so much more about the narrative of what was going on at Disney Animation at the time. You know, they, there are a fair amount of interviews with them, but they all feel very sort of press junkety. It's hard to get the kind of backstory on them. And they do feel like just kind of consummate old Hollywood company men. So it was, it was tough to sort of dig around there and explore a little. But I mean, we're now, end of November, we're starting Henry Selleck on the show who's one I've been waiting a long time to do for him to have a new movie that we could tie it into. And he's the opposite of that, where there's so much about Henry Selleck as a guy. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. For better or worse, and how it uh, sort of has helped and held up his career at different points. Oh, fantastic. Well, I, I can't wait to listen to that when it comes out. Uh, and uh, I hope all of our listeners do too. So just quickly, before we get into a goofy movie, I'm going to ask you the things that we ask all of our guests. So what are the Disney films that you grew up on as a kid? I was a real omnivore. I was like a hardcore Disney kid. Um, my mother was very overprotective about what I watched. And Disney was one of those things, as I think it was for a lot of kids, where it's like, this is clear. If the Disney logo's on it, it's in the clear. Yeah. I don't need to vet this. So I just would dig in because I knew I had carte blanche as long as it was in one of those white clamshells. The first movie I ever saw in theaters was Jungle Book. Oh, amazing. When they did a re-release, I guess in 90 or 91, that my mother says she remembers taking me to see it and seeing the way I looked at the screen and being like, oh, this is the rest of his life. Huh? Like, <laughs> this is that I just was so laser focused in on it, even at a, a nonverbal age. My two favorites growing up, I think we had both of them on VHS and they were the two I'd watch the most, were Robin Hood and Jungle Book. The Wolfgang Retherman era is still, I, I think as a kid, imprinted on me the most, and as an adult, is still the era I like the most. I think it's an interesting sort of midpoint between, you still have the old men working there, Disney's dead or dying, the budgets have been cut, the films become a little shaggier and woollier and a little more behavioral and a little more modern. And I, I think those movies all have this really interesting kind of hangout vibe to them. All the scratchy animation, the sort of reusing of Baloo across multiple movies and all that sort of stuff, I find really uh, charming. I don't know. It's the one era where Disney starts to feel kind of like B-movie in a cool way. And it's artists really trying to push and see what they can get done. So yeah, those were the biggest for me as a kid growing up. And then as you get into the later years, I, I really liked the ones that felt like they broke out of the mold a little, like Hercules. Lilo and Stitch is maybe, on balance, my favorite. We've got another vote for Lilo and Stitch. This keeps coming up. I've never yeah. seen Lilo and Stitch, right? But I'm now wow. not allowed okay. to watch it until we get to it in the podcast. And so many of our guests were like, which ones do you like I now? Uh, which ones do you, have you seen later in life that you've gone, oh, this yeah. one's great, and I never saw this as a kid. It's always Lilo and Stitch. Sam, I'm getting impatient here. <laughs> well, I think they would do this once a decade thing, kind of. I mean, it's like, I know this Goofy movie is an oddball film that's stuck between a couple different divisions of the animation department but this similarly when this comes out in the mid 90s it's like what is this none of the other disney movies feel like this i think oliver and company was a little like that in the 80s and lilo and stitch in the 2000s where it just feels like this one sort of snuck through this yeah. is not the tone these movies have this isn't musically what they sound like this isn't what they look like I feel like at this stage, our Lilo and Stitch episode is going to have to have like six or seven guests. We'll just do like <laughs> yeah. a parade of people coming through. Ten hours long. Everyone who's been on the show so far who loves Lilo and Stitch coming in to 
finally enjoy the fact that Ben's seen it and talk about it. It's going to be a roundtable episode. How many people can we get on Squadcast, Sam? We'll find out. Anyway, that is enough from us. We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time, we're all off to see Powerline with Max and Goofy in 1995's A Goofy Movie. Now, Sam, this is going to be a slightly looser episode than normal, as you can probably tell by our extended intro and lovely chat with Griffin there. Uh, But did you do a plot synopsis for a Goofy movie? Are we sticking that closely to the structure? Can you give us a little rundown of the synopsis here? I've done it. I've written it down. It was last minute, but I think I've pretty much captured it. I think I've captured the essence of the Goofy movie. Eager for some father-son bonding time over summer vacation, Goofy takes his son Max on a cross-country road trip. Max is desperate to make it to pop sensation Powerline's big concert to impress his crush Roxanne, so he sneakily reroutes the trip to LA. Goofy is heartbroken when he finds out, but the two manage to reconcile and make it to the concert on time. There's lots of antics that I've elided there. (laughs) It's pretty much a non-stop parade of Goofy on a road trip antics that we'll dig into. So where did this come from? Right, I did a very small amount of research because to me this was like totally out of my sphere. I'd never seen this film before. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, this was my first time viewing of a Goofy movie. And I don't even really think I was that aware of the cartoons that it sprang from. So I did a tiny amount of research, Sam. I always leave this to you to do the real uh, digging into stuff. But the phrase Goof Troop came up. What can you tell me about Goof Troop and how that leads us into a Goofy movie? So Goof Troop was a TV show that ran from 1992 to 1993. So it was a pretty, it was a short run, but it was like a classic, like 65 episode long season, which was pretty standard for American cartoons at that point in time. And, and would just replay every day for years. Like it's time on air was so much longer than it's time producing new episodes. This was on TV when we were kids. This was on ITV Saturday mornings, Ben. You could catch Goof Troop and the adventures of uh, Goof, Max, Pete, PJ, Pete's family who aren't in this movie. He has a wife called Peg and a daughter called Pistol. We'll probably get into Pete a lot more <laughs> as we go. Who? Yeah, okay, so Griffin, this is like important context. Ben, hmm. he's got a problem with Pete. There's a long okay. running like issue with Pete on this podcast, which is that when we first encountered Pete, I can't remember when. It might have been when we did Mickey's Christmas Carol. It might have been a bit earlier than that. Ben has no idea who Pete is. Who is Pete? Who is this guy? Pete is like the number seven Disney character, right? Like right. Pete is behind like the big six. Donald, Dizzy, Mickey, Minnie, Goofy, Pluto, Pete. He's like there. He's, yeah. he's core crew. He's everywhere in the Disney universe. Ben had never encountered him. And then on multiple subsequent occasions, even after I told him who Pete was, failed to recognize Pete whenever he showed up. So I think we've just recently managed to really... Pete's stuck in the craw now. Yeah, yeah. We've just managed to really ingrain in his brain who Pete is, but this is the first time he's had yeah. to contend with him in a movie. I mean, the weird thing is Pete is like essentially Mickey's Bluto, right? Yeah. And I think the early Mickey canon is very Pete heavy. It's one of these <laughs> things where it's like, Pete is like number two for a while. Right. And then even when, like, Donald and Goofy and Pluto and Minnie come in, Pete's still, like, in the five. At any given moment, he's pushing one of them out. I think what you're saying of, like, Daisy jumping above Pete maybe (laughs) has more to do with merchandising than anything else. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I think as, like, Disney becomes this big merch machine and so much of our sense of those classic characters, they're not getting put in new tunes that often... 
is like who's on t-shirts, who's in the parks. Yeah. And that's when Pete starts to really slip away. Pete's not cuddly. Pete's an antagonist. He's a narrative problem. You know, no one wants to hug Pete in the parks. They don't want to wear Pete on a sweatshirt. Yeah, I've got to say, we don't have time to fully get into this right now. But as I said, I got married a couple of weeks ago, part of my honeymoon. I went to Walt Disney World for four days. I had an incredible Mm. time at Walt Disney World. We're sending Sam many, many pictures every single day of like, look at this, look at that. Here's Mr. Toad. Here's the giant from Fun and Fancy Free peeking into this shop. All of this stuff sending you weird merchandise like you can get a bongo the bear pin <laughs> the amount of pete merchandise i saw was like minimal to zero yeah i feel like the disney parks would be the equivalent of me going who's pete you know the disney parks yeah. also don't know who pete is i briefly worked at a, a disney store location in Times square during a, a rougher period of my life uh, and career. But I remember distinctly one day a woman coming in and going, where's the Pete merchandise? Like angry. <laughs> and I was like, I, at first I went like, who's Pete? And she went like, Pete, Pistol Pete, Peg Leg Pete. It was like listing all Pete's like <laughs> nicknames. And I was like, oh, right, Pete. And she was like, you don't have anything with Pete on it? And I like zoomed around the entire store just trying to see like, <laughs> is there even a shirt with like eight characters on it where Pete yeah. is one of them? I truly think there wasn't a single thing in a two-story Times Square Disney Store flagship that had any presence of Pete on it. But to be absolutely clear, first of all, this is now a Pete episode. It was always <laughs> going to be. We've kind of yeah. tricked you. We've hoodwinked you by saying this was a goofy movie. We both knew. A very Pete movie. This was going to be yeah. a Pete-centric podcast. Yeah. So Pete doesn't just date back to Mickey. He is the oldest character that they still have wait he's the oldest recurring disney character he's older than oswald the lucky rabbit what he's older than oswald the lucky rabbit pete was introduced in the alice films uh griffin do you know the alice films yes of course the alice comedies yes yeah jesus wow he was a bear to begin with in fairness but he looks like pete he sounds like pete Uh, so the alice comedies were like the first big ish walt disney hits from the early 1920s, and it was like a live-action animation hybrid with a live-action girl called Alice in an animated world. And Pete was her antagonist, then he was Oswald's antagonist, and then he was Mickey's antagonist. So I'm looking here, this is when he's in peg-leg Pete phase. This is, he's a bear (laughs) with a peg-leg. Yeah, yeah. And no, otherwise no clothes. Okay. Classic Disney. <laughs> to be clear, Ben, he's, he's had a lot of aliases. So maybe this is why. Maybe you've heard of Peg Leg Pete, but you didn't just know Pete. He's been called Dirty Pete, Putrid Pete, Pee Wee Pete, Big Pete, Bad Pete, and Big Bad Pete. <laughs> Big Bad Bootleg Pete. Pete, I'm seeing as well. Pete maybe has a branding issue. He was originally Bootleg Pete because he was a bootlegger because it was the 1920s. <laughs> so Pete's original wow. occupation was he bootlegged alcohol, and that's why he was like an antagonist to Alice. Wow. Yeah, every Disney movie now opens with Steamboat Willie, right? Right. Doing the wheel and whistling, just out of shot as Pete. Like, he is, like, <laughs> the second character we yeah. see in the Mickey Mouse cartoon. He is wow. core to everything that Disney is. So so when we get the uh, new 100 Years of Disney logo coming up, really what it should say is 100 Years of Pete. Yeah, we're, we're coming up on 100 Years of Pete. Wow. Like, three years, we'll be there. I was just checking. I wanted to double-check in my mind. I am correct about this. They recently released the Steamboat Willie Lego set. No Pete. There's no Pete. I've got it. You have that. I've got it, I've built it, can confirm no Pete. Right. I mean, he's the third character in that short. (laughs) He is the heavy. That's wild. I wonder, you know, obviously, I'm sure you guys have talked about this in the past, but Disney's continuing efforts to keep Mickey out of the public domain. And so much of it has been filibustering to extend the copyright lengths in America 
but also the strategy of breaking Mickey into separate characters. So basically saying when Steamboat Willie goes into the public domain, that doesn't mean Mickey's public domain. That is Steamboat Willie Mickey, who is his own character. Other versions of Mickey remain their rights. It would be so funny if when Steamboat Willie goes in the public domain, they just make it all Pete. <laughs> they just go, it's Steamboat Pete. <laughs> but this means that we're almost there with Pete. Yeah. If he isn't even there in the public right. domain already, we're pretty close to Pete being fair game. If they say, look, we'll keep Mickey, but you guys can have Pete, Sam. If Pete comes into the public domain, we're making Who's Pete t-shirts. Okay? <laughs> Unofficial Disney merch, but official Disneyversity merch. So, okay. So, if we're talking the origins of a Goofy movie, we go, what, back to the 1920s, but then we fast forward yeah. again 75-odd years. Uh, so, Goof Troop is this big cartoon series, so that predates a Goofy movie. That's what, like, 92 to 93 said, this is 95. Yeah. So then when did the idea come up to not just make a movie, Sam, but make a Goofy movie? This is not a regular movie. This is as goofy as a movie gets. That's one of my biggest laughs in the film is when it opens with Walt Disney Pictures Presents a movie. And I'm sitting there thinking like, damn, all right, okay, cool, a movie, good. That's what I was expecting. I'm used to this. Yeah. A goofy movie? Whoa, steady on, mate. My expectations have been turned on their head. Immediately know you're watching a masterpiece, yeah. <laughs> So the Goof Troop series had kind of come to a close. And in Goof Troop, Max is a kid. He's like kind of elementary school aged child. And for this, they like age him up to a teenager. It's set a few years later. The plot was apparently suggested by Jeffrey Katzenberg. Yes. Um, who, you know, we're currently, I mean, Griff, you'll be very familiar with Katzenberg. We're currently right in the middle of the Katzenberg era. He's currently still at Disney. I don't know if we want to spoil for people who don't know exactly what goes down with Katzenberg, because we'll <laughs> get there in an episode or two's time. But he wanted to make this movie based on a road trip that he took with his daughter whereby he wasn't gelling with his daughter very well, they weren't very close, and then by the end of this road trip to, I don't know, the Diet Coke factory or wherever Katzenberg's ideal vacation spot is, they had bonded and had become kind of best of friends. Katzenberg had a few other ideas for the movie. He wanted it to be Steve Martin. He wanted Steve Martin to be goofy. Jesus. What? To be goofy? Yeah. Presumably the guy who voices Goofy in this also voiced him in Goof Troop. Yeah, Bill Farmer. He's been doing it forever. Not literally forever, but for a long time. I don't know if you if you found this in your research, but I've, I've seen and read interviews with Bill Farmer before where he talks about when they did officially, you know, hire Bill Farmer to do this film, they told him like, but we think Goofy should sound like a normal guy now. This movie's yeah. going to have more sort of emotional nuance. We don't think people will buy into the story and the character struggle if he sounds. And he was like, I did like two weeks of recording where I just did it in my own voice without the yeah. yucks and any of the goofyisms. <laughs> Gosh, he would say. If they'd have released that version, the title card would have just been a movie. They wouldn't put the word goofy. A movie. It, it would have just, just a movie. there. But I'll say, like, hearing that really makes me appreciate Bill Farmer's performance even more. Because it underlines to you the fact of it should be hard to emotionally invest in this character. It should be hard to build a movie around Goofy feeling kind of sad and stuck. This character does not feel like he can be stretched to that zone. And he has a performance that sounds like Goofy. He's not toning it down or grounding it in any sort of uh, 
realism anymore, but there's there's an emotional honesty to it that's pretty incredible. Years ago, when they were trying to make what ended up being Scoob, but I think went oh, through yeah. multiple iterations of some version of Warner Brothers trying to make a new CGI Scooby-Doo movie. And at one point they had the idea of, we want to change the sound of Scooby-Doo entirely. Frank Welker's had a good run, but we want to change the entire landscape here. And I got asked to audition for it, and the thing at the time I heard was they really want Pete Davidson to do it. What? What? He did Marmaduke! Yeah, I don't think he ever was interested in conversation, but that was sort of their, like, ideal mood board casting of how to, like, freshen up Scooby-Doo. And so they were like, they're looking at a, a bunch of other young comedians if, to see, you know, if Pete Davidson passes or whatever. The year that Pete Davidson has had of, of being in a relationship yeah. with Kim Kardashian and now no longer yes. of almost going to space, I think the thing that has shocked me most is him almost being the voice of Scooby-Doo. Which, once again, who knows if it ever even <laughs> crossed his desk. But as it was relayed to me, that was their blue sky idea wow. was Pete Davidson is Scooby-Doo. And so they sent me these sides to tape an audition for it. And they just kept on saying, we are not looking for someone to sound like the original Scooby-Doo. This is a chance to break through and start fresh. Do not feel beholden to the history of the character or how he sounded in the past. And then you look at the sides and the first line is, rut row raggy, we're in rubble. <laughs> and it's one of those things where you just go like, there is no other way to make Scooby-Doo sound. Mm -hmm. You cannot reinvent the wheel here. And it feels like the same thing with Goofy, where it's just like... And, and what they ended up doing on that movie was hiring Frank Welker to do the exact same voice. They recast every other character, but they were like, you can't really mess with Scooby-Doo. We're going to have the same guy do it who's done it, you know, since Don Messick died. And, and I feel like it's a similar thing with this where, like, not only do you need to hire Bill Farmer to play Goofy, but you need to hire him to play it the way he's played it before and just add some depth to it. And it reminds me also of Jim Cummings' performance in uh, Christopher Robin, which I think yeah. is so good. And similarly, I think there was a period of time where they, you know, some of the other characters they recast in that movie, they were thinking, do we try to get a bigger name who sounds like Winnie the Pooh? And it's like, no, just get Jim Cummings. He's lived with this character for decades. He can go deeper if you need to. He can go sadder. He can get more complex with it. He knows this character like the back of his hand. Yeah, Chris O'Dowd was Tigger in that for a while, and they recalled yes. it at the last minute because it just wasn't working. Because it's yeah. Tigger, because we know what Tigger sounds like. Right. Right, you can't reinvent that. Really. I mean, that's the wonderful yeah. thing about Tiggers. He's the only one. <laughs> Very yeah. good. Yeah, so it feels like the kind of, let's get Bill Farmer to do it in his voice is like the compromise, maybe. I don't know the exact chronology, but like Katzenberg came in with Steve Martin or Burst. That's and insane. then he got talked down maybe to like Bill Farmer, but it's the normal voice. And then eventually they realized this just isn't working. Like it just doesn't, oh gosh, gosh you can't do it. It, it doesn't no. make sense. Yo, ho, 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 ho. <laughs> that was me trying to do a goofy falling down the stairs noise in the normal voice. It just a realistic huke. But I also, I think it would be unnerving if you looked at goofy animation and the voice coming out of it was like, Maxie, it's time to go on a road trip, you know? <laughs> and like, either are you telling me that Goofy's not going to move like Goofy or are you telling me he's still going to move like Goofy and sound like any suburban dad? That was kind of my next point, which is, so Bill Farmer manages to find the emotional depth in mm -hmm. the voice of Goofy and able to like make what is a genuinely moving at times really? brutally sad film. Beautiful performance. Yeah. With the voice of Goofy. In fact, it is more 
emotionally potent because it's the voice of Goofy, because we yeah. have our existing connection with that voice of, of who Goofy is. Again, it's just like in Kingdom Hearts 2, when Goofy is briefly killed, it's sadder because it's, it's the Goofy that we know. So that's spoilers for Kingdom Hearts 2. But they also managed to do that with the animation, because there mm. was this long-standing supposition, which I think we'll probably talked about when we talk in, in our very earliest episodes, that like when Walt etc. were developing Snow White, we have to move away from this cartoonal style if we want to make a movie in which audiences can get emotionally invested in for 90 minutes. If we want to make people cry, it can't just be like 90 minutes of Mickey Mouse. And part of that, I think, is that these characters are established, like that there are no real stakes to their world. Goofy can like fall off buildings etc and it just doesn't bother him at all he just gets up and continues on with his day um you know there'll be a little scream there'll be a little gosh and then that is as far as it goes and in snow white they needed characters who like could believably be imperiled and i guess characters who the audiences can emotionally invest in because they look like them their facial expressions resemble them and this is really the first feature length i guess there was a ducktales movie there was ducktales treasure of the lost lamp which is a couple of years earlier but that's not the same thing. That's not aiming for that emotional place, for that emotional effect. No, I also think the DuckTales movie is is trying to play more in the sandbox of live-action adventure movies. Like, it's yeah. more of an Indiana Jones riff. It's played pretty straight. And it, it weirdly, despite starring ducks, I feel like the animation in that film, especially the animation acting, is a lot more toned down from my memory. I haven't rewatched really mm -hmm. it in a while. Whereas, like, all these characters came from, like, an era of peak rubber hose animation. And when you have the Goof Troop TV show, you're on a TV budget and schedule. They're not going to have full animation in the same sort of way. Goofy's klutzy, but you're not getting the same sort of fluidity of movement. Whereas this, you're just like, Jesus, every single character in this film is so physically expressive. The thing that really jumped out to me re-watching it was, like, the care and attention to every background character. This is a movie where every scene, every character in the frame is doing something interesting. Mm. And in all the musical numbers, you have passerbys and other people on the road and people in the background to all join in on the song. And they all have incredibly unique, specific designs, their own sort of character language of movement. And everything and everyone in it is just so visually expressive. And it's, I think those faces, what they've kind of realized is that these cartoonal faces, these like bizarre kind of misshapen dog-like faces, that's not detrimental when it comes to expressing emotion. That's actually a plus yeah. because Goofy has this huge malleable snout on the guy, which Snow White, for example, is like restricted to this smaller face, more rigid facial features, like limited to the range of movement of an actual human face, if that. Whereas Goofy has so much more on his head that you can play with, that you can manipulate in order to convey that emotion. He can go further than a character like Snow White or Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella can. And I think this is a much more moving movie than many of the Disney movies. It's moving in a very genuine way, in a way that a lot of those more realistic, human-led Disney features aren't. And part of it is because that face has such a capacity for sadness. Like the specific scenes in this movie where it's like, 
oh man, it's what they are getting out of this character in terms of performance is like leagues ahead of what they're doing in some of those much bigger budget, much more successful Disney Renaissance films like Aladdin, etc. It is incredible how fluid this movie looks. Because I don't know if you guys have this experience, but you rewatch some animated films you haven't seen since you were a child as an adult, and you go like, oh, this looks terrible. I remember (laughs) this having the same level of production value and fluidity as peak Disney, but this is really limited. I see all the corners cut here. And this movie just feels like they just push themselves and stretch themselves, knowing that they were like spread across multiple departments and they had, you know, one eighth of the budget the big films had. It's it's wild. Another thing, I mean, I think this movie is incredibly well directed. And it's one of these movies that like should have been a toss-off, should have been a throwaway. You talk about the origins of this film coming into being and you're like, well, there's the weird peak Disney renaissance. We should be making the most out of everything. Anything that's working in any tendril of the company, we should do more. So Goof Troop has ended, but it's still doing well in syndication. Should we do a special? Should we do a movie to wrap it up? That's sort of just purely IP franchise building thinking. And then on the other side is Katzenberg coming back from a road trip with his daughter going, this was emotionally resonant to me. We should make a movie about this, which means like it's the one situation in which Katzenberg would allow someone to make a story that's this small scale, emotionally intimate and character based because it's his idea. And he's so into the idea of other people making a movie about what he just experienced that then when you combine these two things, and Goof Troop as a, as a show, I remember liking when I was a kid, but it's, it's really just kind of like an animated TGIF sitcom, right? It's just like cartoon full house. It really domesticates Goofy. It's just sort of single dad, you know, the family next door, the kids getting into trouble, whatever. And the thing that I feel like a lot of people focus in on, which is like, where is Goofy's wife? Who is Max's mother? What happened here? You know? Is Goofy a gay single dad? Is he a widower? Like, what's the story? She's never, ever even invoked or sort of alluded to in any of this. And that always just felt like weird unspoken thing. But Goofy was still, even though you're domesticating him, taking him out of the fun sort of physical environments, he was still just kind of like oblivious, happy-go-lucky. The way this movie immediately turns Goofy into kind of a sad sack but a sad sack who tries so hard to put a good face on everything and make everyone else happy. You talk about how expressive this character is, right? And how much they get out of his face and his body and all of that. The thing Lima does that I think is so smart is he understands if Goofy is operating at that tenor for most of the movie, if you have a scene where Goofy suddenly stops and slows down and like looks off into the middle distance, it suddenly becomes so upsetting where you're like, oh wow, Goofy has interiority. Goofy has an off switch. If you leave Goofy alone with his own thoughts, if he doesn't have to put on the brave face for everyone else around him, when he's left alone in the department store, the hot tub, or the scene that's arguably the most heartbreaking where he comes back to the hotel room after seeing the map, and you just have Goofy looking down at his feet like motionless. (laughs) It's suddenly like addition by subtraction, where when you give Goofy some stillness, it really starts to like hit. Yeah, there is so much to get into here. Uh, like We're kind of underway on the main discussion already, but Sam, just to kind of connect all the dots, so Katzenberg has this road trip, Goof Troop's been a big success. Where does this come out? How does this come out? And is Katzenberg proud of this when, when it comes out? 
So it comes out in 1995, a couple of months before Pocahontas. And Pocahontas is also seen as like a kind of passion project of Katzenberg's in a way. We'll get to that when we get to it. But this was the first animated movie, even though it wasn't like a Walt Disney animation film, to come out after Katzenberg left the company under very acrimonious circumstances that, again, we'll detail when we get to it in future. So this comes out in between The Lion King, which was the biggest ever hit, and Pocahontas, which was positioned to be like an even bigger hit. They really thought it was going to kind of pick up the baton from The Lion King and take it even further, like critically, commercially. And a lot of people seem to suggest in interviews that this was a movie that was very closely associated with the Katzenberg regime. And for that reason, there wasn't a lot of song and dance around its release, but it did get a theatrical release in North America. I'm not even sure if it did over here in much of the world. It didn't, but it did get a theatrical release in North America. But yeah, it wasn't a Walt Disney feature animation production. It was made by Disney movie tunes, which is probably better known by its later name, Disney Toon Studios. And that's the subsidiary that's tasked with making the lower budget animated movies based on Disney IP. So they do most of the sequels. They do the Tinkerbell movies. They do the Planes movies. And they have studios operating out of like France, Australia and other countries. So this was like a Disney in France, Disney in Australia kind of co-production headed by people like Kevin Lima who'd come up from the actual Disney feature animation studio that we've been following through our podcast. So as you listen to this now, you may have seen this in the cinema. If you're in the UK, possibly not. It might have been a VHS thing only here. And yeah, what we get at the start of this on Disney Plus now is just Walt Disney Pictures. Not Walt Disney Animation Studios, Walt Disney Pictures. That's enough. And we're on with a goofy movie. We have really kind of begun our discussion of the film itself already so let's pick straight up with as we've kind of talked around what the world of a goofy movie is because as we've been saying to me it struck me compared to the um, theatrical stuff that we've been watching it is looser it is cartoonier to me you could kind of see the televisual roots but also it feels beyond just a tv cartoon it's kind of a middle ground between the main features and what was happening on tv but as we've also said this is a weirdly contemporary disney this as you said griffin if we're looking at oliver and company as like 80s new york this is 90s high school movie oh dad you don't understand me suburbia middle america yeah, yeah a little bit of like almost pop punk playing but at this end like skateboarding is like the raddest thing which to be fair in 2022 skateboarding is still the raddest thing uh, we have a big influence of contemporary pop music we're going to talk about Powerline, but that is surely oh. a just a major like prince michael jackson amalgamation mc hammer too i'd argue in some of the outfits. yes big hammer pants styling to yeah. Powerline. Uh, so it's just this bolt of, I mean, now it's all kind of out of time. It's so extremely 90s. But at the time for audiences, this must have been like, hey, here's Disney doing something that feels very now. It's interesting because this version of like Goofy in contemporary suburbia is a direct evolution from like where the Goofy shorts left off when they stopped making theatrical Goofy films in the 1950s. So like those Disney classic characters like Mickey, Donald and Goofy always existed a little bit out of time. You could see them pop up in like, oh, it's the Wild West or it's the medieval era or it's something a little bit like the modern day, but they were never really connected to like a really contemporary time and place. And Goofy evolved from like Mickey Mouse's sidekick to someone who's 
but like I think probably the most iconic era of Goofy shorts is the how-to films. Like that's what I think of when I think of a Goofy film is here's Goofy teaching us how to play golf or whatever. Here's Goofy teaching us how to play football. Goofy's sort of becoming a silent film comedian. Like those, yeah. those shorts are, the dialogue comes from the narrator and otherwise it's mostly Goofy existing as the sort of like Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd type fool who keeps on getting tangled up. Yeah, and they are all set in like a contemporary era. And when they start to bring in like team sports as well, you get it where Goofy portrays the entire team. So like every single character is Goofy, like every member of the football team, every member of the hockey team or whatever is Goofy. And those are the best shorts. But you do start to lose Goofy a little bit as a character with a personality. Like you don't have the voice, which at that time was performed by Pinto Kolvig very much in those films. And then in the 1950s, they decided on basically a new status quo for Goofy, which was Suburban Dad. And he had a wife and he had a son. And the son looks a little bit like Max, but he's called Goofy Jr. Goofy is given a canon full name, which is George G. Geef. Instantly don't like that. I No, I reject it. Oh, you don't like it? You don't like George Geef? He, he's Goofy. In Goof Troop, he's called Goofy G. Goof, which okay. is, is that better? <laughs> My friend Connor Ralph, who I do the George Lucas talk show with, he uh, almost exclusively will refer to Goofy as George Geef. Uh, I, I don't know if he does it just to drive us crazy, but he loves being able to pull out George Geef as a name. So you can tell from the name, like the goofiness of Goofy is really dialed back in the 50s and he exists in this like middle class suburban world. And so did Mickey Mouse and so did Donald Duck in their own series. As many of their audience members were like moving to suburb suburbia in the 1950s. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Much appreciated. <laughs> You're very welcome. They started to move their characters there as well and just have them engage in these fairly like middle of the road adventures as bourgeois parents. But in Goofy's town, everybody's Goofy again. Everybody looks like Goofy in slightly different permutations, apart from his wife, who you never see her face. But from what you do see, she looks like a human being, which is interesting. That's why you don't see the wife in Goof Troop, because she's a human and they didn't want to get into that. So she's yeah. kind of siphoned off. Forbidden love. Yeah. Never to be spoken of again. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to talk about Goofy's human wife and, you know, she left them maybe or for whatever reason. So she's, she's not around. So that's where we get to Goof Troop from. Like when we left Goofy... It was in this very contemporary, suburban, middle-class milieu. And we pick up with him in that position, but obviously in the 1990s, where it's the setting of the 50s suburban Goofy, but they've removed the very bland character of George Geef and replaced him with the original Goofy from back in the day. So he feels almost like a kind of man out of time. It's Goof Troop. It's not Geef Troop. Come on. <laughs> But, but yeah. Goof Troop is very, I feel like he's more George Geefy in that, whereas this is sort of taking the superstructure of Goof Troop and putting classic peak Goofy into yeah. it. One of the first things that I think is so smart about this movie, and it's one of these films where like the opening of the scene kind of encapsulates the entire thematic concern of the movie, which is, I think for most people, especially when you're a teenager, you find your dad embarrassing or you find him kind of scary, right? Like everyone's either sort of intimidated by their father or deeply embarrassed by their father at that age, by and large. You've either got a goofy dad or a peak dad. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, basically, right? I mean, there's gray area in between. Maybe your dad's boring, whatever it is. But there's sort of some act of anger, resentment towards your father for some reason or another that is basically a rite of passage. And you have this opening scene where he's got this beautiful, lush sort of cornfield romance with Roxanne. And then he starts like a werewolf turning into his father. And you're sort of reestablishing almost. It's like the movie pushing through of like, we're going back to classic Goofy. We're going to accentuate all the features. He's going to make the sounds. He's going to move rubber hose again. You know, I, I looked at Roger Ebert's review of this movie, which is fascinating because... Oh, review, yeah. Have you read this? Yes, I have. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's on my list to bring up, but go ahead. Yeah, we can dig into it later in, in full, but he basically, the, the projector broke down two-thirds of the way into the movie, so he re reviewed the two-thirds that he saw. Amazing. And gave it three stars, and then later there's an addendum where he went, I watched the rest of it, I still think it's three stars. <laughs> but... Um, but so he's like, well, I felt like what I had to do, I'm on a deadline, is I'll give you the review in progress because I've seen the movie in progress. And so it's like a series of basically him just publishing his notes written in real time as he's watching the movie. And I mean, the best throwaway line here is, another sad sign of the times we live in, for the first time in cartoon history, Goofy locks his car after he parks it. <laughs> But the other, this is the line. Today's kids are so youth-oriented that Goofy is too old for them to identify with. Max wears shades and wants to take his best girl-slash-dog Roxanne to a rock concert. Now, I think this is part of why this film has built like such a cult following. And for kids like myself who grew up with it, it really kind of stuck in our memories. Is As you said, like when this is coming out, I saw this in theaters. It felt like this is the kind of movie that usually gets punted to direct-to-video. This is coming out in theaters. A lot of people didn't see in theaters, so even if you're watching it on video, it's clearly of a much higher quality than Return of Jafar and any of the other direct-to-video films, which you watch now, really feel creaky visually. And the fact that it's contemporary, the fact that it is about a young kid who behaves like a young kid, doesn't behave like a Disney kid in the same kind of way, you know, is angsty, is embarrassed by his parent, you know, takes place in a semi-recognizable world, all of that. But I do think it's this interesting thing of kids used to watch characters that were ostensibly adults, right? Mickey, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Goofy, Droopy Dog. I mean, it's sort of the whole classic era of short cartoons. Most of those characters were adults. You had things like the Harvey Comics characters, Casper and Richie Rich, who were kids. But by and large, kids were watching, even through Hanna-Barbera, like, Huckleberry Hound seems like an old dude, you know? <laughs> As time goes on, especially in the 90s, this thing that I think Roger was commenting on, started to become like, kids want to watch other kids. The most they want to see is a teenager, you know? Doug is like the oldest you can go here, but kids want to see other young characters on screen. And Goof Troop feels like, oh, the way to make Goofy cool again is to make him the dad to a cooler character who will skateboard and wear the backward hat and have the sunglasses, whatever. And this movie is almost in conversation with Goofy being pulled in two directions between that and being like, we have to calm Goofy down. We have to domesticate him. We have to give him a poochy son to make him palatable <laughs> to this generation. And this movie, which is trying to argue like, no, you should love Goofy for what Goofy is. Mm. It's almost this meta argument of like, you got to let Goofy be Goofy and not be embarrassed of it. And I'm a huge Muppet fan. And I feel like there's a similar thing that happens with Gonzo in the 90s, where Gonzo goes from being this truly like Gonzo performance artist daredevil to being like a wacky uncle with like a chili pepper tie, who's just like a little odd, you know? And I, I love that this like brings Goofy back to his thing and it's Max's whole arc 
which I think, you know, resonated with people watching this movie for the first time. I certainly was a kid with a goofy dad where from the opening scene, I'm like, I relate to this, of being embarrassed when I have like kids come over and my dad comes home and starts making jokes or whatever. I love that the arc of this movie is him being like, I don't have to be embarrassed by my father. Yeah. My father is actually a pretty respectable person in a lot of ways. Because I think it's pulling the audience in different directions as well. And I can fully imagine, I mean, as I said at the beginning of the pod, this film has a cult following. Like people, especially people who saw this as kids, love this movie. And I wonder if part of the reason it has that bit of staying power is that you watch it as a kid and you relate to max you're like i am so max i've got my shades i've got my skateboard it's the 90s and my dad's really embarrassing and then yeah. you watch it now and i was watching this the whole time just purely feeling bad for goofy i was so torn up over goofy being treated like crap yeah. by max mm-hmm. it was so upsetting to watch so i think even the audience and especially maybe people who were very slightly older at the time, parents maybe who were being uh, dragged to watch this movie. I don't know. You can still connect to your inner Max. You can still connect to that part of you that was like, oh God, it was excruciating being a teenager and your parents acting like that. And at the same time being like, I am closer to being a Goofy than I am to being a Max. I think the movie does truly invest in and relate to both sides of their dynamic. Goofy is embarrassing. It is important that Max isn't just being a little asshole you know (laughs) that like goofy is an embarrassing guy to be around but there's a thing in this that i i had forgotten having seen it a little while that is so wise in my eyes in this film where roxanne likes him immediately yeah and she says at the end she's like i always liked you this was never in question right the opening is he's having this dream that when max does this opening song he's uh, you know she looks right through me uh, who can blame her it's the kind of thing we're used to in a movie like this where you're like oh he's she doesn't even know he exists the whole movie is going to be about him building up the courage to talk to her for the first time but basically she's charmed the first time they talk in the movie he's embarrassed by his laugh which she thinks is cute there's the scene where he's waiting outside the principal's office and her friend is like go talk to him like she's nervous about talking to him And Max is so caught up in his own stuff and his own self-consciousness that he still thinks he needs to impress her and win her over by suppressing any goofy aspects of himself and his personality. He needs to reinvent himself. He needs to make his dad friends with Powerline so that his dad (laughs) will no longer become a hindrance to Roxanne taking him seriously. And it's like... The entire narrative of this movie is roped up in him convincing himself that unnecessary things are necessary. And it's interesting because the movie kind of needs to play all sides of that. Something we talked about in our Little Mermaid episode is that Under the Sea basically breaks that movie to an extent because you agree with Sebastian that everything is better down where it's wetter. (laughs) He makes such a convincing case that you do agree that it's better under the sea at the same time you want to want ariel to have the life that she wants on the surface and in this film you want there to be the big power line finale you want them to get to the concert you want to see that but actually that isn't the emotional resolution of the film the emotional resolution is that he was already everything that roxanne wanted him to be right at the beginning so you need to play both sides of it in terms of giving the audience what it wants of hey let's go to the concert and have some fun on the stage but at the same time still land that emotional arc of you were always good enough and goofy was always good enough it's it's an interesting narrative line to thread 
can't. You can't change who you are. If someone's gonna like you, they're gonna like you for who you are, not because you're tricking them into thinking that you're not a goof. It's the laugh thing of just like, he thinks that's the deal breaker. If she ever hears him laugh, it's over. It's literally his nightmare at the beginning of the film. And then, uh, you know, when it happens in reality, he covers his mouth like he had just vomited, you know? Like he's trying to hold puke in. But I, I think it's so smart, like, when he does the opening Powerline performance at the school assembly, it's an incredible performance. Like, he does a great job. You absolutely believe that that would make him popular in the eyes of everyone else. But Roxanne didn't need that. She already thought he was cute and funny. You know, he won over maybe the more superficial kids by doing this, like, perfect impression, but it was not any reflection of who he was as a person. It was just mimicry. And at the end, when they get on stage at the Powerline concert, his killer move is following Goofy and doing the fishing maneuver. Yeah. Like, he's still now killing as hard in front of this crowd, but now he's doing his own thing. He's embracing who he is rather than just trying to copy the, the thing that Powerline's proven. And then Powerline's copying him! <laughs> Everybody wants to be Goofy. This is yeah. a Goofy movie. Everybody wants to be Goofy. I, I want to come back to the Powerline concert, but something that you mentioned earlier in terms of setting up Max and Roxanne, uh, something that I didn't expect going into this film is that there are songs. This is a musical. I did not expect that a Goofy movie was going to be a musical. What do we make of the songs here? Do you guys have a favourite song? How effective do you think they are in this film? I think the Powerline songs work really, really well and we'll get to those and we'll dig into why that is. But they are like kind of pop songs which exist like almost independently of the world of the movie. It, they're, they're sort of that thing you do-esque genuinely works as what it's trying to be. Yeah. Yeah. But I think for me, the kind of proper like diegetic musical songs that the characters perform in the classic musical style of like expressing the emotions that they are unable to express through words alone, they don't quite land for me. And that is the aspect of this movie which feels the most straight to video-y. It's delightful to hear Goofy sing. And I don't want anybody to like think that I'm saying I've got any kind of problem with Goofy's singing voice. I think that is great. There's a version of this where that song that they sing when they're going down the rapids, the kind of emotional father-son bonding song, where that is like a can-you-feel-the-love-tonight style, non-diegetic voices overlaid that we understand through edit and convey the emotions of the characters, but the characters aren't directly singing. And I'm glad they didn't do that. But I do think as songs, it's not those powerhouse songwriting teams. It, this is not Elton John, this is not Alan Menken, and you know who is, but it, that's what feels a little bit low rent about this movie. Like that opening number, it's like, but people are going to hate me for this on Twitter, I can already tell. But that opening <laughs> number, it's like, this is good, but it's not like contemporary Disney movie quality. I mean, you're comparing it against what is arguably considered the high point of like of Disney earworm, right? So it's yeah. like, it's always going to suffer in comparison. I'll push back on After Today, I think is pretty great. I think the other Max and Goofy numbers are not as good. Those feel a little more rote and perfunctory. I think a lot of it too is just the staging of After Today is so much fun. I mean, they do yeah. a similar thing with On the Open Road where it's what I was saying earlier alluding to where Lima just has every single stranger come in and interject into the song, you know? After today, you get this whole sort of like tapestry of all the high schoolers and the townspeople. And On the Open Road has the thing with the undertakers and the like, casket. Right, yeah. all this just like 
fun sort of imaginative potential who else could join into this song and who are they and how can you express a character within five seconds mm. i think those numbers themselves are fun visually yeah i think after today is the only one that works as a song the song that max and goofy sing together in the car the main thing that stood out to me there is that that has a moment where a street smart character traverses the street in a concrete tube being hauled through the air which if we're talking yes. about the connections between a goofy movie and oliver and company that's it right there if you want to make like a contemporary cool street smart character seem even cooler they have to stand in a concrete tube while that's flying across the sky that is the key <laughs> i've learned all the kids were doing it it's the coolest thing you can do <laughs> that's what the 90s were there was skating there was rollerblading everyone was walking dodger style yeah yeah i mean uh, let's get into the max and goofy dynamic because we've talked about it a fair bit already but uh we have the totem of their relationship the fishing pole that has been handed from goof to goof to goof uh, i love that touch and it leads you to as we've said this really emotional place and this really kind of i think emotionally complex place for kids in terms of max then being in charge of the direction of the road trip and lying with the map and it is heartbreaking. I love that shot when uh, Goof realizes the truth and he's he's lying down in bed and you have the, the cameras kind of horizontally on him and it you have that shot where the camera swivels around him, the background dissolves, he's in the car, the emotion has carried through that he was feeling in the bed, he's still feeling that in the car the next day, that disappointment and that betrayal. And what you have there is this really naughty thing of, of what a father should be, what a son should be, what each of them wants, how they're supposed to be relaxing and bonding together, but the, the trust being broken. I was surprised by the emotional complexity happening in this relationship between father and son. I think that was maybe more entangled than I expected it to be from the kind of fun but daffy like 90s high school beginnings of this. And especially a movie that's like 70 minutes long in total, it finds a way to go into those complexities. Also, I mean, just in what you just described, you highlighted the, the quote-unquote camera moves as well. This movie feels like surprisingly cinematic, especially considering the lack of resources they had compared to the bigger Disney movies of the era. And there are a couple sequences where it gets really moody visually. It's usually those sort of like dark heart moments of Goofy's sort of questioning in the shop after Pete tells him about his kid being a menace, the electric chair thing. The electric chair thing? Jesus Christ, that was There's a lot. There's the shot where the Wallace Shawn principal calls him while he's at the, the photo studio. And the shot of him is like this wide shot from the back of the principal's office. And it's like noir lighting of just like the little glimmers of lights coming through the, the window shades outside the the possum uh, stop where the, it's raining and it's like it truly gets dark like it gets visually dark at times it's like we're back in the dark age again it's like we've got back to the uh, late 80s you know before the renaissance yeah. kicked in and the films get visually darker as well as tonally darker also you just mentioned wallace sean what a 1995 wallace oh, sean was having I mean, yeah. between this and toy story and is clueless also clueless, clueless was 95. also 95 Oh, Huge boy. year for Wallace, Sean. Humongous. <laughs> I like strict Wallace. I like wacky Wallace, but I like strict Wallace. He gives good <laughs> principle. He's the principal and teacher's pet as well. He's excellent yes. at that. 
Teacher's Pet, one of my quiet favorite Disney movies. Oh, we'll get we'll get there. We'll get Teacher's Pet. Yeah. But yeah, the color palette and also like the musical palette in that scene in and after the hot tub is really haunting. Mm, yes. Like the really sparse piano as goofy is contemplating his relationship with his son. And in that scene as well, the line that really sticks with me and I find really heartbreaking is actually from Pete when Goofy's like maybe Max isn't all the things that you think a son should be but he loves mm. me and then Pete just looks up and he points at me and goes hey my son respects me and it's like oh my god Pete Pete doesn't know what love is somebody needs to give Pete a hug he needs to like totally readdress his approach to relationships Pete is like bizarrely an instigator in this film because you talk about like Max not needing to learn to accept that he's enough as who he is. He doesn't need to pretend to be someone else or suppress parts of his personality. Pete is the one who is constantly whispering Goofy's ear and instilling the doubt, the distrust towards Max, the feelings of inadequacy. He's a real dick. He's such a stirrer. <laughs> I yeah. think the thing that's painful as well is that the, obviously the things that Max is embarrassed about himself is who Goofy is. I, I, I hate the fact that this is eating away at Goofy's goofiness, you know? It's, yeah. it's, it's upsetting to see him so tortured about his own joyous behaviours, you know? The thing that makes Goofy goofy, seeing him in an existential spiral about that is deeply upsetting. I do need to say, though... Like, if I have one, maybe apart from the songs, one critique of this movie, it's... And I think it works. I think what they do with Goofy works in the movie. I'm not sure if he's Goofy enough. I think he's closer to 90s hmm. Gonzo than maybe you want to admit, Griffin. Like, he's not... In those cartoons, Goofy is a force of nature. Like, Goofy is this destructive hurricane of chaos. And in this, he, like, he maybe falls off a roof once. There's not as much as that, like, Goofy slapstick. Like, Goofy in this is a synonym for, like cringy or like embarrassing it's a cringy movie it's not like uh, goofy i'm comparing it to where he was right before yeah, this yeah. like this is so much goofier than goof troop yes it's goofier than goof troop it's not as goofy as he's ever goofed no and i don't know how goofy he's been since this good question there was a modern how-to short there was a how to hook up your home entertainment system there was a how to like survive in lockdown short as well or right. something of that effect it was pretty goofy in that he's pretty goofy in the mickey mouse cartoon the new like ones. the mickey mouse tv yes. show yeah you're right i feel like that's finally got back to classic goofy but i feel like in the time in between this when you're looking at like clubhouse mickey and things like that goofy is still once again a little too buttoned up yeah yeah up the goof like a little bit i'll tell you what an extremely goofy movie will get sort of lives up to its name he's a little bit goofier he is absolutely goofier and that yeah. yeah he is i would go as far as to say he is extremely goofy in that film <laughs> I mean, I think one of the great things about Goofy is that he has a personality, as much as that fluctuates through these different incarnations. He has a distinct personality. We've often spoken about the fact that kind of in the core crew, Mickey Mouse as a character doesn't have much of a set personality. But he does appear in this film. Him and Donald have a little cameo. And that's just one of many kind of little meta Disney moments. This takes place in a world where the Disney canon <laughs> exists. There is a Disney key ring. There are many mentions of Walt Disney 
Disney himself in Max and Goofy's road trip game. Uh, what do you make of all the meta Disney humour? And how does Goofy operate in a world where Walt Disney also exists and Disney movies exist? Is he a movie star here? Is he some kind of deity? Is Walt Disney like... Because if we were having that conversation of like, oh, is it a man, is it a woman, like trying to play a guessing game, it wouldn't be totally beyond the realms of possibility for me to be thinking of Jesus Christ. Is that the role that Walt Disney plays in this universe? But then there's like Mickey and there's Donald and he says, I'm going on a road trip with my best buddy. And Max says, oh, Donald Duck. And we've never seen those characters interact in Goof Troop. And every character in this movie across the entire United States of America is like a goofy style dog man. So like, is Duckburg here? Can Goofy drive to Duckburg where all the ducks live and that's just one town and everyone else in the continental United States is a Goofy dog man? It does raise these questions, which he obviously isn't interested in answering, but it's it's worth a little thought experiment, I think. I think that's usually the greatest risk of, of going into these sort of meta-style jokes is it starts to make you ask questions that cannot be answered, that are fundamentally unanswerable. You know, when I saw this and I was a kid, I loved all those self-aware kind of meta jokes because... Uh, it made me feel like a big, smart, special boy who understood what was happening. <laughs> and you know what, Griffin? You still are. I, I try. Thank you. That means a lot to me. But, but you know, now we live in an era where the Easter egg style of filmmaking has become a little overbearing. Yeah. And it feels like it can become so self-aware and self-referential to the point where it, it's hard to actually take anything in the movie seriously. I still think the way those references play out in this movie are clever and just barely by a hair are under the line of being too much, where it's like you can just kind of take them as they are, they're spaced out a bit. But it it does, yes, as a kid, I remember asking that question, because it's like in the Muppet universe, you're aware that the Muppets are performers. They have a certain celebrity. In this, I don't think we're supposed to take it that Goofy is the actor who has appeared in Goofy shorts. But you do get that elsewhere. Yeah. Like, Mickey Mouse has done that Muppets thing of, here he is, it's the actor, it's the guy. Like, even back in, like, the 1920s, 30s, he was doing that kind of meta, like, I am the actor who plays all of these different Mickey Mouse characters and these Mickey Mouse shorts, and Goofy's done a bit of it as well. Yeah, that isn't what this is. But this is, it is interesting to think about this as, it's the era where Disney would just start to make fun of themselves a little tiny bit. Because yeah. you get, in The Lion King, there's the joke about how annoying It's a Small World is, and then in this, there's like Possum Park and the Country Bears, Possum Pals, Posse riff. I think they know that this works as in a textual humour because it's something that kids are familiar with, and you yeah. get that a lot in Shrek. It's like Shrek works for kids because we all know the fairy tales. And I think these jokes, like you say, work for kids because it's something kids can recognize. But it is interesting. It's like the old Disney knows that Country Bears is kitsch now. And they're yeah. acknowledging that. I also find it really interesting that, you know, the first Enchanted, which is Lima as well, yeah. feels like the first seriously post-Shrek Disney movie. Yeah. Where Disney's like, we've been gently poking fun at ourselves and trying to show that we're inside on the joke. And now DreamWorks has kind of really taken the wind out of our sails. We cannot go back to just doing a straight Disney princess movie now, which they already hadn't done one successfully in a while. And I, I know that the first Enchanted movie was originally written as like an R-rated comedy. Right. It was meant to be a more adult, what if a Disney princess was in real New York and you submitted her to like Martin Scorsese's style, super oh, wow. seedy New York. <laughs> I think it was, I mean, a lot more extreme fish out of water comedy like that. And Lima is the one 
who gets a lot of credit for being like, we need to make this a love letter. We can poke fun at all of the tropes. We can hit every beat. If anything, we can get more specific in all the reference points we're going after. But I think it should come from some place of acknowledgement, love of what these things are. So I think he's a guy who's particularly good at threading that needle and also just seems to have the encyclopedic mind and the vocabulary for the history of this stuff to understand what to pull from and where yeah i think a lot of that self-awareness leads you into that kind of the 90s-ness the mid-90s the 1995-ness of a goofy movie and i think that takes us to the final destination of our road trip as well as max and goofy's in the ultimate 1995-ness of the Powerline concert. I love this is Chekhov's Powerline concert. If you mention the Powerline concert in the opening act, you have to pay it off in the final act. And, and not only that, we're going to be on stage with him. <laughs> You'll see me on the show. I love just they're cutting corners that they know they don't need to go around that corner. You can cut this corner of Goofy and Max. They make up when they have that sequence on the waterfall because this is a Disney movie. There has to be obscene on a waterfall. That just <laughs> happens in so many of these films. And instead of of showing them kind of getting back on the road and making their way and sneaking into the guitar case and the drum box no we're just straight at the concert they're there we just accept the fact that a jape has happened uh, that they've managed to get backstage <laughs> at the show and before you know it both of them i guess through being kind of goofy through getting into antics wind up on the stage i, I liked that as a, a little wrinkle here that both of them end up on the stage by being the goofiest versions of themselves. And that is kind of what Power Lion celebrates as well. As you said, Griffin, when they're doing the dance at the end, it is Goofy's fishing dance that then Power Lion copies that. And Power Lion copying, that means it's cool. And so Max copies it. And they're all doing the same dance at the end is a wonderful little visual metaphor. What do we make of the uh, Power Lion sequence as the finale of a Goofy movie? I think it is a lot of this movie's cultural permeance comes from the two Power Lion performances. And I think you were saying, you know, there's a lot of Disney Renaissance nostalgia just because of our generation now being the people who get to write the articles and do the podcasts and control these sort of oral history, 20 year later, look back narratives and stuff. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a little bit younger And she was sort of like, I don't understand why that one in particular seems to have such a specific hold as this cult thing now versus all the other direct-to-video movies. And I was like, well, that's A, first of all, it wasn't a direct-to-video movie. And I think a lot of people sort of, Mandela Effect, even if it didn't get a super successful release, even if it wasn't released in every country, it was at a weird size that I think even as a kid, you could clock like, this feels bigger than the direct-to-video or the TV shows. It feels smaller than the big movies. What is this thing? So that makes it stand out. And then aside from that, not only is it a movie that's about contemporary kids, but like the nostalgia factor isn't just, this is what I watched when I was growing up in 1995. It is one of the only Disney movies that is so specifically set in a place and a time that watching it gives you nostalgia for being that age. It's not just, I remember watching this in 1995 and where I was, but this movie is about Pocahontas in the woods. Mm-hmm. It's like, I know, I, I remember what high school or middle school or elementary school felt like. I remember these music videos playing on TV. I think the fact that the Powerline songs are genuinely good uh, and that Powerline feels like such an embodiment of that specific, maybe the end of an era of a certain type of pop star, 
and these numbers are just really well done. Like, the, the choreography is really good. The dancing is really good. I mean, they got Tevin Campbell as well, who is... I yeah. think they originally wanted Bobby Brown, and the character, like, looks a bit more like Bobby Brown, and you can see the Bobby Brown genesis there, the DNA there, but they got Tevin Campbell, who is, like, the next best thing. He was, like, a big kind of R&B, New Jack Swing star, very emblematic of that time and place and that era of pop music, and that lends it the credibility of having this star. This is not just, like, these could have been Tevin Campbell songs. This is not just Disney mimicking the thing that you kids love. It's like, we have, like, successfully co-opted it to a degree. And you know that they know they had something good with that song because it does the thing that every Disney movie does when they know they've got the big song and that they just play it a bunch of times in the movie. Yeah. Especially then when the credits roll again, they're like, let's just play Eye to Eye again. Everybody wants to hear Eye to Eye. Let's send audiences out with that song. I'll hear it song. as many times as you give it to me. I'll take all of it you got. Am I wrong in thinking that Tevin Campbell also did the choreography? They basically let him choreograph it, filmed it, and then used that as reference for the animation? Yeah, it's like a composite performance from okay. him. And it's interesting as well because, like, so the last Disney movie set in a contemporary specific place and time was Oliver and Company. And we mentioned when we talked about that movie, that has like the first on screen contemporary African American character just walking past in the background at the start with a mm -hmm. boombox. And in this, it's like, yeah, this character power line is specifically coded through the voice performance, through his appearance, through his darker skin as an African American character. And it's like, oh, this is, this is like the first major real black character in a Disney movie, which is like a version of contemporary blackness, not the minstrel Z that they've performed in their earlier films. And it seems to have like, like that is a big part of its legacy. It has like a big black audience for that reason as well. I embarrassingly have not watched it yet, but I had several friends reach out to me when it aired and told me that I, I needed to see it. Do you guys know about the episode that Atlanta did recently? Atlanta, the Donald Glover comedy drama series. Yeah, I watched it today. Yeah. It is incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really good. So it's like an alternate history of a goofy movie about a low-level black animator who is accidentally made the CEO of the Disney company and decides to make the blackest movie of all time, which is a goofy right. movie. It's like rewriting the origin of goofy movie through like Putney Swope. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and the, the process like destroys him, like his attempt to grapple with what blackness means in Hollywood and what blackness means to him. It, it destroys his life and it almost destroys the studio. And it's a really darkly funny, well put together piece of television. And it's interesting because Goofy as a character, like all of those Disney characters, like, you know, especially Mickey Mouse, has roots in minstrel caricatures. Like, he's originally mm. kind of a step and fetch at archetype. The Disney animators, like Art Babbitt, one of the key goofy animators, has described him as, like, kind of a caricature of a, like, a, a good-natured but shiftless colored boy, in fact, is what he said. So he has his roots in those stereotypes of blackness, and it's interesting that the goofy movie seems to have, even though it was made by white people, like reclaim that to the extent that it can be enjoyed by contemporary black audiences because of, you know, initially through this like power line character who is the specifically overtly black character, but then through a subjective racializing on the part of the audience of the other characters as well. Mm -hmm. I wanted to read out a quote because obviously this is not something I can speak to directly, but there's an excellent academic article on this by a guy called A. Joseph Dial called A Goofy Movie in the Production of Film Blackness. 
And he says that seeing the film's blackness, which is not made apparent with the presence of skin or corporeality, requires looking beyond representation to the realities of its production. Within the character of Powerline and his performance of R&B, an objective black anchor emerges, centering the more subjective representational objects. So like these goof characters who aren't overtly racialized, who just look like goofy, who don't appear to have human ethnicities, the character of Powerline opens the door to like a more subjective information of blackness on the part of those audiences. And that is another big part of like its legacy and why it seems to stand above other similar films of the era, which have been forgotten. I am just always in favor of discussing a goofy movie in such academic terms. <laughs> and I think the fact that the film can actually hold up to that says a lot. Yeah. So shouts out of that. Check it out. A goofy movie contains multitudes. You know, it operates on all levels. Uh, and seeing as we're all seeing eye to eye on that, see what I did there. Let's head in to the final part of the show. Now, normally we would have our discarded section here talking about the stuff that didn't make the movie, but there's no discarded for a goofy movie. Everything here is here with purpose and intent. It is meant to be here. Uh, Sam, we briefly touched on Ebert in the main discussion, but what did critics say at the time about a goofy movie? Was it a critical hit? Yeah, so apart from that kind of bizarre non-review, which at the end of the day did give the first half hour of a goofy movie three stars, so that is a recommendation... Critics were pretty down on it. Lewis Black at the Austin Chronicle said, this is a story about a boy and a dad and a boy in first love. What mental giant decided this was a goofy story that needed to be made? Jesus. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's, he's almost taken what we liked about the movie and saying like, but that's not what goofy is. Like only a fool would think that this needed to happen. Not only what we like about it, but what I think we all agree is the thing that has allowed this movie to outlast a lot of its contemporaries the reason it has sort of stayed yeah yeah even though i maybe could have stood for a bit more goofiness we don't need 90 minutes of pure goofiness like they utilize this character and what he represents to tell a deeper more emotional story and it's really yeah. effective so lewis black is in the bin <laughs> peter stack from the san francisco chronicle if you put it in a time capsule, no one would ever believe a goofy movie in a film like The Lion King came from the same planet. And he's wow. obviously talking about like quality, relative quality. But I think, as we've said, like, no, because this is, I'm not saying it's as good as The Lion King, but it speaks to the contemporary moment in a different way. Like, The Lion King is as timeless as Disney's movies get. There are no humans, there are no signs of any kind of civilization in that film. But this is a movie about what was then the here and now, and it holds up as a time capsule in a way that a lot of movies that speak really effectively to their time do so peter stack can get in the bin but yeah it wasn't it wasn't a, a critically successful film it wasn't a particularly commercially successful film it was obviously by this point not intended to be really it made 35 million domestic which is just chump change at this point considering the lion king just made 422 million dollars so this was just it did not make a blip on like the financial radar but on VHS, obviously, is being reclaimed and rewatched many, many times. And I guess Disney Plus might bring it to a new generation. Yeah, and it, I've seen in the last five or six years a real uptick of goofy movie merchandise. Disney yeah. clearly has realized, oh, there's like a hungry audience for this. And there's that anecdote that they did the 20th anniversary panel at D23 a couple years ago. And it was the most attended panel they had. Wow. It like doubled or tripled their expected attendance size and it was standing room only. And that's the moment where I think they went like, oh, people love this thing. 
This isn't some weird curio. We can sell Powerline shirts for the next 20 years, which they will. We'll buy they them. have. Yeah. Uh, so, so Griffin, for you, if you put yourself in my shoes of a critic, if you were going to put a star rating on this and, and a bit of a verdict, what is your verdict on a Goofy movie? What star rating would you give this? I mean, I'm trying to hold myself back from from overrating it. But even just, I'm going to say something very controversial here. I'm not talking about empirical quality. Mm-hmm. I certainly accept this perhaps the greater achievement through most, if not all, metrics. I do prefer this movie to Lion King. <laughs> Whoa, okay. <laughs> now, I maybe rank Lion King a little... Once again, this is just taste. Sure. I'm not talking about artistic greatness. But I rank Lion King maybe a little lower in my 90s Disney canon than other people. And I just, I always enjoy watching this movie. I'm waffling between three and a half and four. Wait, so what star rating are you giving Lion King then? That's the question this raises for me. <laughs> That's mm, that's a good question. Okay, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say that I give both films a four. Right. But I, different I reasons. slightly prefer Goofy. If it's just yeah. about which movie am I going to put on to watch for the umpteenth time. That's my take. I, I put them both at the four star scale. Take that, whoever that critic was that said they're worlds apart and you can't compare them. I did. <laughs> Griffin disagrees. Uh, Sam, where are you going on this star rating wise? Yeah, I, I I did not watch it as a kid, and I don't know if that's really necessarily part of why you rated so highly, Griffin. But it, for me, it like it never got its hooks into me at that early age. So I'm just rating it now as an adult in fact i first saw it about three years ago in a hospital waiting room on an ipad (laughs) that's my goofy movie story (laughs) ben and all of my friends were at primavera sound music festival in barcelona um including my partner everyone was there i was too poor and i also had to visit the ball hospital to get my balls checked which everybody should do if anyone Mm. thinks they've ever got anything slightly underworld going on with the balls get yourself to the ball hospital and get it looked at (laughs) But I had to stay in the ball hospital for hours and hours. Yeah, while you're waiting for your appointment, look, what better thing can you do than watch a goofy movie? Depending on how long the wait is, you could also get an extremely goofy movie in there as well. Right. And also, (laughs) getting the balls checked up does feel like a very goofy checkup in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's the goofiest checkup. It's the goofiest checkup. the goofiest of the medical checkups. There's going to be yelps. There's going to be yeah. a lot of crossover with the content of this movie. Yeah. yeah. So a friend of the podcast, Emma Lang, she came, she brought an iPad, and she sat with me for hours in the waiting room of the ball hospital watching a Goofy wow. movie. Good friend. In a yeah. way, that's a very fond memory. But it maybe wasn't the optimum circumstances to first see this thing in. So um, that's a, a long <laughs> walk to me, Sin. I think it's in that three and a half stars range for me. We do half stars over here. So I'm I'm sticking with that. I mean, I don't have a ball hospital story, but I'm also going three and a half. Also didn't have that childhood uh, attachment to it, but I had a lot of fun with this. You know, I don't think I would necessarily revisit it that quickly, but I also just enjoy the chance to see those classic core Disney characters because despite us doing a Disney podcast we don't really encounter them that much. They don't really appear very much at all in the mainline Walt Disney Animation Studios movies, so I really enjoyed spending a bit of time with Goofy, even though really this maybe should be called a Max movie rather than a Goofy movie. Well, but the journey is Max accepting himself as a goof, so it does become yeah. a Goofy movie. It's it's sort of the family. It could have been called a Geefy movie, a George Geefy movie. <laughs> a Geefy movie. A Geefy movie. <laughs> oh i love it well uh okay so pretty strong ratings from all of us and now it is time 
for Lasting Legacy, the final part of the show, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie, and in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies, and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. Obviously, Sam, there is all kinds of goofy stuff going on across the entire Disney catalogue, but what is the Lasting Legacy specifically of a goofy movie? Well, this is an extremely goofy movie. <laughs> which is one of the greatest movie titles of all time like a goofy movie it works it sells what this film is it gets the point across an extremely goofy movie is just absolutely inspired i can't wait for the third one like an exponentially goofy movie or whatever that is surely now in the works griffin maybe they'll give you a call i hope so yeah it's also it, i mean the title fits it's a movie about a goofy participating in the x games it is an extremely <laughs> Sort of right. early 2000s, more extreme version of Goofy yeah. Max. It's a bit more your era, Ben, actually. I'm okay. assuming you haven't seen an extremely Goofy movie. I have not, but if it's skateboards and extreme sports, I'm there. It's extreme sports and disco is weirdly the combination. Because <laughs> Goofy, they decide... So Max goes to college, and Max is participating in the X Games. He's a cool, hip, slightly, like I guess, blink one it to adjacent kid, I imagine. And... Goofy, as his dad, represents the antithesis of that, which is someone who is really into the culture of the 1970s. Like, that's how they characterize him, even though he's like 100 years old in this, because he has to be the age that Max's dad would be. He's like coming in in like a fake afro, like bell bottoms, doing John Travolta, Saturday Night Fever dance moves. Yeah, so Max goes to college. He's getting ready to compete with the college X Games. Goofy finds it hard to let Max go. So when he loses his job, he enrolls in Max's college and joins the rival X Games team. I'm in. So it's back to school with extreme inline rollerblading and disco. (laughs) And Goofy finds love as well. I cannot tell you how much I want to watch this right now. Vicky Lewis, right? And BB Newworth, I think, are like the two new characters. I, I mean, I remember really liking it. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's like slightly a rung below the Goofy movie, but it's goofier. Because the extreme sports, that's perfect for Goofy. That's taking him back to his roots. It's the modern day yes. version of the baseball and the hockey and everything. He gets yeah, very physical. I, I rung, I, at least a solid rung below this movie, but a rung above the direct-to-video ilk of that time. So you're saying a rung above Lion King 2 Simba's Pride. If these are the comparison points... Yeah, it's maybe on even footing with Lion King one and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, which we will get to. We will get to that um, on this show. Yeah, so what else have we got coming from a goofy movie? Oh, so there was an extremely goofy skateboard and video game. Again, that feels very much up your street, Ben. So it is just like a, a Tony Hawk's clone. Max really doesn't appear very often in the Disney canon after an extremely goofy movie, sadly. He plays a park and valet in House of Mouse, a show that I talk about all the time on the podcast because it has references to everything Disney in it. And uh, Mickey Mouse owns a club, Goofy's the waiter, and Max is a park and valet. And then that's kind of it. He was in Mickey's Once Upon a Christmas, Mickey's Twice Upon a Christmas, and he hasn't been in animation since 2004, which feels wrong. Like That doesn't feel like it can possibly be the case. I mean, I imagine in a world where we got Chippendale Rescue Rangers coming back, where we had the reboot of DuckTales as well, it feels like this resurgence in love for a goofy movie, that ageing up of the generation who grew up on this film, means we could be not far off from the return of Max. I could imagine that happening. 
Yeah, I mean, the only thing I don't want is a live-action Goofy movie remake. For the love of God, please do not. Photorealistic CGI. An extremely realistic Goofy yeah. movie. There you go. There's the third one in the trilogy. So one more thing that I have to mention is a video game. So there was, I guess this is technically before a Goofy movie, there was a Goof Troop game on the Super Nintendo. And the only reason I bring this up is because it was designed by a guy called Shinji Mikami, who would later build on the premise and source code of Goof Troop to develop Resident Evil. What? Wow. Yeah, the first Resident Evil game is a direct evolution of the Goof Troop video game. So presumably the Goof Troop game pitches them against zombies and mutated creatures in a horrifying underground lab or in a terrifying town that's been overtaken. That's the Goof Troop game, right? Well, there is a, a, a level where you explore a haunted house. But yeah, the fact that it's like all of these like walled off rooms, you've got very limited resources. You can pick up a couple of like accessories at a time to protect yourself from the enemies. And you've, it's more about like puzzle solving than direct action. It is the direct antecedent of Mikami's next game, Resident Evil. And apparently, <laughs> I don't understand enough about video games to know how this would work, but apparently he did initially build Resident Evil using the source code of the Goof Troop video game. I mean, if there's a hackable version where you can play Resident Evil as Goofy, that would get me to play that game. I'm terrified of horror games. I love horror movies, but horror games, I just can't do it. My nerves can't take it. But I would play Resident Evil if you can play as Goofy. That has it would to soften be the blow. Yeah, an extremely Goofy Resident Evil. <laughs> I also, I just, I, I googled Goofy game and uh, trying to get uh, images of the Goof Troop game. Funko also released a board game this year for Goofy movie. Really? Wow. So the Last and Legacy just continues, it never stops. We've got the Atlanta episode like a week ago. This is a movie which is like still very much part of maybe not the cultural conversation, but a cultural conversation. One of them. Yes, a cultural conversation. A goofy cultural conversation. (laughs) Yes, well said. And that is it for this week's class. This week's bonus special class, Griffin. Have you enjoyed your time in the hallowed halls of Disneyversity? I have. It, this it couldn't have timed out better. You kind of emailed me with a like, hey, because our schedule, this is maybe the only thing we can offer you. And between the Kevin Lima connection with Enchanted, but also just because this is quietly one of my favorites of this era. Yes. Uh, I had I had a great time talking about. It. I had a great time rewatching it. I do agree with you guys that my extra half star probably has to do with me seeing this in theaters at least once and many many times in cable where this thing is just pretty burned into my head but i i do i do think it's it's a really solid movie i don't think it has developed a cult just because of 20 year cycles yeah. I think it, it has some elements that really resonate, yeah. Well, those personal connections, that, that's what we're all about at Disneyversity. As academic institutions go, we're not cold, we're not clinical, we're all about matters of the heart here, so I'm really glad that we got you on. Uh, for this film in particular, it's been a perfect marriage. Thank you so much for making time for it, and yeah, congratulations, Disenchanted is loads of fun, I had a great time with it, uh, and you can watch it now on Disney+. Plus. Blank check, you can get wherever you get your podcasts, and yeah, if you like this show, I'm sure you'll enjoy uh, especially your Musker and Clement series yeah and Henry Selick starting now Henry yeah. Selick there you go perfect chance and uh, catch Wendell and Wild, his latest film on Netflix but I'm Griff Lightning on Instagram you can follow Blank Check Pod on all the social media accounts the George Lucas talk show we do intermittently but it's the thing I do with my friend uh, avowed George Geef connoisseur 
Connor Ratliff, and we do those as both live streams and live shows across the states. And you can follow George Lucas Talk Show on different social media, watch on YouTube. We have all our old shows available for streaming there. He's a fan of all the great Georges, George Lucas, George Geef. Uh, <laughs> always in the same conversation but yeah thank you so much for joining us it's been an absolute blast and listeners join us again for our next seminar as we get back into the regular disney timeline with aladdin aladdin is our next movie we have it in the bag we have a very exciting guest for that who i'm sure you're going to love in the meantime if you've enjoyed this episode please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and if you fancy dropping us a little review we'll get you all access passes to the next powerline show Full disclosure, you may be entering the venue in a guitar case. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Griffin. Uh, can you give us a pip goodbye? Can you get back into the pip voice? Is that easy yeah, to slip back try. into? Yeah. Goodbye. Oh, that's perfect. That's amazing. And it's goodbye from me. I'm not going to do any voice. Maybe I'll do a hoot. It's goodbye from me. There we go. Oh, God, that's horrible. <laughs> Come on, Sam. Give us your, give us your goofy laugh. Okay. Oh, that, okay. Is that, yeah, is that any better? That great. I'm a professional voice actor. <laughs> Griffin, have you hooked yet? Have you given us a goofy hook? I, I, I haven't. I did a. Uh, let me. Let me. This is a lot of pressure, but I'll give it a shot. Hook, hook. It's tough to do. No, I think out of the three of us, you are clearly far and away the best. I put myself at the bottom of the list. Anyway, listeners, that is us done. Thanks so much for listening. Catch us next time. Bye. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Disneyversity.